Welcome back. This is episode 172 of Herpetological Highlights. I am Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And this week, we have... What's the best way of summarising this? It, it's, it's a salamander-focused bonanza. Yes, salamanders. We're going hundreds back to the land them. of salamanders. Yeah, hundreds of them. Many, many salamanders. We love these slippery little freaks. And um, we hardly ever get to talk about them on the podcast. Well, we sometimes do. We had that parachuting salamander recently, didn't we? That was pretty awesome. The one that could jump out of the trees. and Use its little feet. Open its little skin flaps yeah. and glide to safety. But yeah, we don't really have enough cause to talk about them. So we actually set out. We were like, do you know what, mate? It's been a long time. Like I said to you, it's been a while. Let's see if we can find something about salamanders. And sure enough, brand new study came out this year about salamanders, about invasive species, genetics, some sort of um, interesting themes. But let's in- introduce the paper. It's by Cooper and Schaffer, 2023, Managing Invasive Hybrids with Pond Hydro Period Manipulation in an Endangered Salamander System, Conservation Biologies. This was published in. So yeah, invasive species are something we talk about a lot on this podcast, usually because there's an interesting reptile or amphibian finding themselves in a new location and wreaking havoc on the local animal communities. And I think it's one of the more easily funded aspects of uh, (laughs) reptile and amphibian science in general, isn't it? And so it should be, Ben, because it costs the US economy billions and billions and billions every year, 100 billions. So yeah, it has to be funded. Otherwise, you know, they're just going to start spreading out of control, especially when you consider how many that we've managed to eradicate, which is pretty much, if you're not on an island, zero. But they have to be managed. They have to be mitigated because they cause chaotic effects in some cases. And this is a slightly different twist on the whole invasive species theme, because we're not talking necessarily about an invasive which is like completely eradicating its competition instead it's breeding with its competition and hybridizing with it and muddying the genetic waters yes it's a whole other level of complexity when you're dealing with basically the invasive aspect of it is an invasive set of genes essentially it's it's a bit much (laughs) it's a bit much when it comes to complexity (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about the system, right? So we're in California. California has a native species called the California tiger salamander, Ambistoma californiense. And this genus, Ambistoma, they're known as mole salamanders because they love living that underground life. In fact, you're very unlikely to see one of these creatures, except for a short period of the year when they are traveling to shallow pools to mate or if they're on their way back, because most of the time they just live underground or you'll occasionally find them in the water in the spring. And this is a nice salamander, um, obviously being called a tiger salamander gives you a bit of an inclination as to what color they are, although they're not orange and black. They're more yellow and black. Obviously, it's a shame to see a noble mole salamander named after an existing large cat the tiger salamander and also a, a mole lower and also a mole <laughs> yeah why <laughs> like they have their own <laughs> they've really missed out what would be the would alternative you mole what would this... you the fossorial salamander the hole dweller crevice guy crevice guy crevice guy salamander hmm. all right or just like you know what's yellow with black spots i mean actually that's just the same problem again all right, it is hard to name the animals, okay? You've put me on the spot and I can't think of a better one. But, you know, they're a nice-looking salamander. They're kind of quite chunky, 
dark gray to black, and they have yellow spots on their bodies and a nice little chubby salamander face. Very endearing creature. But these California tiger salamanders have had an ongoing threat to their species because the invasive barred tiger salamander, which is Ambystoma mavortium, so these barred tiger salamanders, they were deliberately introduced from Texas in the 1950s and 60s because the larvae, so this sort of early life stage where they're living in the water, swimming around with external gills, they are actually used as fishing bait. So... In the 50s and 60s, it was quite common, I think, to use these larvae as bait. And obviously people were shipping them around the larvae from Texas into other areas so they could use them as bait. And some of them escaped along the way. I don't know whether there was also some sort of operations going on to produce this bait. I assume there must have been. There's always Um, something like that where you just, yeah, all right, we'll dump some in a pond so they take care of themselves and then we can come back and pull them out when we need them you know a la like jackson's chameleon and things like that you just sort of let them do their thing and then you can come back and grab some for your purposes when the time's right when they ripen <laughs> yeah exactly or before they ripen if you're using them as fishing bait yes. you don't want them too big but yeah so these salamanders were used as fishing bait and now as a result the barred tiger salamanders from texas got out into the countryside and they started mixing because they readily hybridize with the california tiger salamander so you've got this situation where the tiger salamanders are just minding their business in come the barred tiger salamanders and they start breeding with them and then they begin to produce hybrids and the authors of this paper call it a hybrid swarm so there's basically quite a large area where all the salamanders or a large percentage of the salamanders are this kind of mixture between the original species and the old species and you might be thinking hey who cares like who cares salamanders are salamander right yeah how different can they be if they can interbreed and produce hybrids. Exactly. Are they not just one salamander? So maybe we should just put it to bed there. No, there is a reason you should care because not all salamanders are created the same. And these two salamanders, despite being from the same genus, have some pretty crucial differences to the way they behave in terms of their ecology and what they eat and the things which eat them and how they behave. So yes, they actually fulfill quite different roles in the ecosystem. And if you have this hybrid set of genetics coming in and taking over everything is going to have the consequence of the salamanders in the area behaving differently and then you're going to end up with a situation where there's like impacts above them in the food chain impacts below them in the food chain everything starts to get a little bit crazy and you end up with these they mention a couple of cascading problems endangered sort of fellow dwellers of the pool the tadpole shrimp and the vernal pool fairy shrimp as potential sort of victims of the hybrid swarm coming in so you've got other endangered species that would do better with the native tiger uh salamander than this hybrid version Mm. and we talked about the fact that these salamanders go to pools to breed and the california tiger salamanders the native ones they historically go to lay their eggs and breed in these vernal pools which are temporary water bodies so essentially like it rains in the spring they fill up tiger salamanders come out they find them they mate they lay their eggs and then they leave again and then the larvae will develop in these pools until it's time for them to go and then they'll leave and that is like a crucial part of the salamander's life cycle historically a lot of the pools in california would have just been small natural and then they they dry up later on in the year And there was some suggestion that this drying of the small pools might actually not be good for the invasive species 
um, the barred tiger salamander because they're accustomed to deeper water and so they like having their larvae potentially have a bit of a longer time to hang out in the water before it evaporates in the summer. And so that led to this idea that maybe it could be used as like a sort of control measure for the barred tiger salamanders if they were to manipulate how long these ponds stayed wet and try and make it shorter um, in the hopes that the California tiger salamander would benefit and the ones from further south that are accustomed to sort of water that lasts for the whole year or lasts for longer wouldn't be able to cope with it. So they did this incredible experiment, actually. They dug a bunch of massive ponds and the area they did it in is just so cool. There's like all these really beautiful sort of circular ponds in a big field near some woods. And they experimentally manipulated the conditions in the ponds to try and understand how different drying regimes, so how long the ponds are actually wet, would affect the different kinds of salamanders depending on their genetics. The hydro period. Yeah. Exactly. That's what hydro period means. Well, I think hydro, hydro period water. was between the spawning of the salamanders and then it drying up as opposed to the existence right. of the pond. It's slightly different, but it's the wet period that the salamanders are making use of essentially, I think. Yes. And the hope was that they could kind of manipulate this period and show that shorter periods, which are more akin to what happens in California naturally, would benefit the native species. Unfortunately, though, it didn't really work that well, did it? Like, it kind of turns out that regardless of the conditions, the hybrids are stronger. <laughs> the hybrids are just yeah. like, generally superior. Essentially, they ranged it from 80 days to 115 days in increments of five. But it did just seem like the hybrids were essentially better in pretty much all ways. <laughs> it was better survival rates and larger offspring right larger larvae which as far as proxies for how well they're going to do in the wild in general kind of a slam dunk in my books (laughs) yeah bigger and stronger yeah generally means superior so it was a bit of a um i don't know i guess it was probably a little bit of a disappointment really for the author of this like they were maybe hoping that this uh experimenting the hydro period could actually sort of benefit the native species a little bit more but as it turned out no the hybrids are actually incredibly incredibly potent regardless of the hydro period but what they did say is that it could if you tried to sort of limit the hydro period to make it a bit more natural it could in conjunction with other sort of management strategies be a good way of actually helping the natives to succeed so maybe if you've got like i think there are like fast genetic tests you can do in the field so you know it's feasible that one day there could be people walking around with like a little system that can sort of like take a pinprick from a salamander and tell you straight away oh is it this species or that's even a scrape you don't even need to prick them you know just give them a little swab could tell you which species it is and then remove the ones which have the uh have the abundance of hybrid genes but yeah it's one of those situations which is it's going to be really difficult to get these things out of the system now that they're in, which is a classic case. Yeah, that's what they sort of ended on, I think, is in terms of the <laughs> more optimistic note, is that the hydro period does have a pretty sizable impact on survival. So just for numbers for the high hybrid ponds, you had sort of 2.1 sort of percent survival when it was 85 days hydro period, and that jumped up to 21% at 115 so pretty much 10 times increase. For your native ones, you had something similar, but not as dramatic, only 13-fold increase. But the point is, 
if you know, like you're saying, if you can ID where those hybrid ones are, and you are capable of manipulating the hydro period, you could manipulate the hydro period in a way that decreased survival for the hybrid ponds and do the opposite at the places where you know that you've got native salamanders to give those guys a boost and to sort of reduce the survival chances at the the other ponds. But that does require knowledge of which ponds are sort of hybrid dominated and which ones are native dominated. And of course, we're talking about hybrids here, so it's not just a binary. You're going to have to pick a cutoff of how hybrid is sufficiently hybrid to warrant action and how much is Mm. well they're native enough and they're not having these sort of knock-on effects in the ecosystem to other native species that the 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 sort of more hybrid ones might be having a more dramatic effect that's tricky yeah as you say at some level you do just want a salamander in the system doing salamander stuff and i know we said at the start that these salamanders aren't the same so if you can have that salamander at least be like a high percentage original species the likelihood that it'll be carrying out the kind of niche you know, yes. performing the ecosystem function that its forebears did is higher. So yeah, that's something which people who manage these things will have to think about. But yeah, an interesting case. And there are other cases of um, genetic, they call it introgression, where the new species is coming in, yeah. and mixing its genes with a species of conservation concern. There's a lot of that with the um, isolated, small endangered populations of iguanas in the Americas yep. as well. They're probably another time we've talked about this. But I think barred yeah. owls, there's a, there's a two different species of barred owl in the north US that are, are similar things happening. But again, that's like a Ooh, land use. Animals. That's not even an introduction thing. They're moving there themselves. So that's a really, all my understanding of it, that's a, like a land use change, a human land use change, allowing contact between two previously isolated groups as opposed to like mm. a translocation of, of a salamander that probably wouldn't have made it there by itself, right? I think they have about two kilometers worth of dispersal, these guys. So it's it can come about in different ways. We think of the invasive as just a classic translocation, but this sort of introgression stuff is probably going on naturally as well as it is, you know, human mediated. It does make you wonder whether give it enough time things will sort of settle down to the new hybrid salamanders. Like, are they that much better at consuming things and that disruptive in the ecosystem that the things that they're disrupting can't counteract them or do you think it's just a matter of time before your weird little fairy shrimp and stuff get the memo and adapt in one way or another and actually the hybrids are not like yes there's this sort of beijing and smoothing out of, of the genetic difference between the two but ultimately things can keep up yeah hard to know i think um in all these cases obviously given enough time like if you look in a billion years it won't matter right um (laughs) like there may or may not be salamanders there but yeah i don't know i guess it's just a case of whether or not the ecosystem like which is probably under well we know it will be under like a host of other pressures like climate change and land use change all these things like it's just another synergistic pressure for the ecosystem at large to kind of try and weather so will it be able to yeah let's see have you got anything else about these invasive salamanders I don't think so. There's a sort of extra little bit that they're suggesting maybe extended hydro periods might be something to investigate in areas just to absolutely give the native ones as much opportunity as they can, just like try and supercharge them as best they can. If there are no invasive ones. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever give them more time in the water? Really neat stuff, but it's way too complex for me to get into because I don't know what I'm talking about. Is they, because of all this genetic work on them, they 
can sort of ID the genes that are different between the hybrids and the natives. And there's a suggestion that maybe one of them that's different is something to do with fat storage. They saw that their larvae were sort of heavier. So there might be a suggestion that that's what's leading, you know, that connection between that gene and that sort of output. What's what's the right word? <laughs> like trait? Yeah. Might be ID'd. And that might be one of the reasons the hybrids sort of do better is because of this gene associated with uh, fat metabolism. It's useful to be able to store that fat. Yeah. And it's always neat to see an instance where someone's managed to ID gene and trait to actually connect up what might have been selected upon for one salamander versus another salamander. Mm, yeah. All right, so let's move on, shall we, from uh, salamanders to our species of the bye week and we've got a venomous snake. Okay, this one's actually by yours truly. So we have Major, Rank, Reisig, Pymans, Morris, Hofreiter, Barlow, Broadley, and Worcester. 2023, Museum DNA reveals a new, potentially extinct species of ring owls from the eastern highlands of Zimbabwe, published in PLOS One just last week. Just last week. This is super fresh and probably going to be one of the, I suppose the podcast is going to be up there as one of the, the first bits talking about it, I would assume. Yeah, like we've got a conversation article out. So yeah, there's a little bit out there online about it. But Yeah, um, the conversations are yeah. nice. It, it's a nice drop-in for folk that don't want the technical details, but kind of want the funner aspects, I guess. Yeah, I really like the conversation. I think it's a really good way of like scientists trying to get across their findings to a general audience. It's really good. So yeah, I'll put a link to the conversation piece in the show notes. But yeah, for this, we are in Africa. So we're in the Eastern Highlands of Zimbabwe. And as the name suggests, Eastern Highlands, it's a mountainous area on the eastern side of Zimbabwe, close to the border with Mozambique. And we're in a particular region of this Eastern Highlands called Nanga, which includes Zimbabwe's highest point, which is Mount Nyangani. And um, yeah, this is a story of quite a mysterious snake, really. The story begins way back in the 1920s. Somebody found a snake that they described as a cobra. So it was seen doing the classic defensive hooding posture of a cobra. And there are three cobra species in the Eastern Highlands. But this one was described as being banded, so having a banded body, and also having red interstitial skin so that skin between the scales is red so that when it kind of hoods up you can see the red between the it's pretty between the black scales as pretty it dramatic out. yeah yeah i mean it's a pretty cool looking animal from the limited pictures i've seen and yeah there's three cobras but none of them have this red interstitial skin so it was a bit of a mystery the identity of this snake and this mystery caught the attention of the late donald broadley who is now widely considered to be kind of the most eminent herpetologist of Southern Africa. He published loads and loads of different species. And he kind of became interested in this species of mysterious hooding snake. And it wasn't until 1961 that Don actually got his hands on some of these snakes and was able to identify that it was what's called a ring cows, which is Hemocartus hemocartus. So this is a snake which is very closely related to cobras. Some people would argue it is a cobra, but it's... Well, controversial. it's sandwiched between two things that people call, call cobras, right? Because it's related to your nashas or nayas. On the other side of it, it's not too distantly related from king cobras, which aren't cobra cobras, but are kill, called cobras. So 
I think there's a decent argument for lumping the, all of these guys together and calling them all Cobras, even though they're different genera. Yeah, I'm kind of inclined to agree, but I think a lot of people disagree. So we've kind of elected not to call it a Cobra. We're calling it Cobra-like. Cobras, <laughs> true Cobras -cobra. of the genus Naya. Yeah, pseudo-Cobra. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of like the direction we've gone. But yeah, you know, it's very much a Cobra in many yeah. ways. The ring cows from South Africa... Essentially, yeah, that's what this snake was thought to be, the ring cows. And so, yeah, Don identified it as a ring cows, this spitting, hooding, cobra-looking snake. And he actually went there and managed to find some live specimens in the 1980s. And he measured them. And it was that data that we used for the morphological analysis. So um, to see whether or not it was different from the populations further south. Because the ring cows has a range across, like, South Africa, Lesotho and Eswatini. And so... Obviously, we had that. We had the kind of morphological analysis, the measurements of the scale counts and all that stuff. But obviously, species descriptions these days are generally expected to include a genetic element as well. And that was where things get a little bit more tricky because we had access to a genetic sample from Zimbabwe. And that was a snake which was road killed back in 1982. But because it had been stored for a long time, the DNA in that sample was highly degraded. It may also have been stored in something called formalin, which is used as a fixative for genetic samples, which can degrade DNA. It could have just been age. But essentially, trying to sequence that snake's DNA was very tricky because of this DNA degradation. So back in the 80s, I don't know when it was tried, but it was kind of known that this sample had not good DNA inside it. However, <laughs> Not good DNA! <laughs> Not good DNA, it's got the bad DNA. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically. And uh, essentially, there's been some like big advancements in extracting DNA from samples, mostly driven by the ancient DNA community. So these are people who study things like mammoths and cave bears. And fortunately for me, some of my collaborators on this paper are experts in that field. So Axel, along with Michael and Pia in Germany, managed to do some of these newfangled sequencing techniques and got some sections of DNA out of this degraded museum sample from the 1980s. So they managed to do the sequencing of that old specimen. And this is kind of where I came in. Um, so Ellie and myself did some sequencing of modern specimens from the range of the ring cows in South Africa that were collected by Wolfgang and Axel or donated by people who had captive ring cows of like known locality. So they had been wild collected and they knew where they came from. And yeah, we used those to... We sequenced their genes as well, the same areas that we had good coverage of the ancient sample or the old sample from the 1980s. And Sorry, yeah, just side, side to... question. Did the sort of state of the old samples dictate which parts you were looking at? Or was it just sort of tried Absolutely. until you got bits that were known to be useful for IDing species? Yeah, no, you're right. It was very two very specific regions called 12S and 16S. We had like chunks of both of those. And luckily, there are primers for those specific regions for modern snakes. So we just used primers yep. that were existing to amplify those regions of the ones from further south. And we could compare them. So yeah, we did the genetic analysis between me and Wolfgang. And as it turns out, the wrinkles from Zimbabwe likely diverged from the ones in South Africa and Lesotho and Eswatini between 7 and 14 million years ago. That's a pretty ancient split, really. That's a long time to have been separate. And we use that evidence in conjunction with the morphological differences, mostly to do with uh, ventral scale counts. And yeah, it's evidence to show this was a 
a new species, so to speak, at least the species we could describe. And yeah, we called it the Nyanga rinkaus, which is Hemocartus nyangensis, the Latin meaning of that uh, species epithet nyangensis is of Nyanga. So it just means, yeah, Hemocartus from Nyanga. And yeah, in my opinion, it's a really cool snake. You know, it's banded, it's sort of black and dark red, and it's got these venom spitting fangs, although no one's actually ever seen it spit venom, but it has the kind of special slits in the front of the fangs, which suggests it, it can spit venom. And the reason that we don't know whether it does or not is just simply because not that many people have interacted with this species. They're quite a stocky snake, really, aren't they? They're, you'd expect a cobra to be a little bit more... I was going to say elegant, but that sounds cruel, because they're beautiful-looking snakes with their stripes and their wonderful like, red and black, as you were saying, hooding pattern and, and uh, interstitial skin. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, they are quite chunky, though. They are quite chunky. They're not they're very not long. They're not the boon vipers chunky, but uh, they're heading, heading that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're definitely, if you were to imagine a cobra, at least for me, I imagine like quite a streamlined, sleek right? animal. But Active this, foraging. These guys are like, They've yeah, got to be swift. Yeah. I assume these guys are actively foraging. I think most cobras are. I expect they eat like mostly amphibians. I think that's a lot, a lot of the diet yeah. of the southern ring cows is amphibians and you know they like these kind of like more moist habitats so yeah that's quite likely size but yeah so before, we said they don't... jump on size we're talking it's... 600 mil to about 850 millimeters svl right so not monstrous but as i say i feel like they've got a bit more presence than that svl measurement is really giving them credit for yeah they look punchy yeah yeah, so yeah, 60 centimetres, a couple of feet long. Not massive, but um, yeah, chunky little characters. And we said they diverged from the southern ring cows somewhere between 7 and 14 million years ago. The reason for that is probably climatic change. Um, the kind of area in between the two species was becoming a lot more dry during that period. So southern Africa was like cooling and drying. And the likelihood is that these two species got separated and kind of began their evolutionary trajectories as separate units during that period because the area in between the two species just got too dry for them to survive. So would you call are... this uh, like climatic, what is it, vivarians? Is that the word? V- uh, I don't know. Oh no. I don't know. I thought you'd... Vicarians? What are you trying there's, to say? There's a word <laughs> for speciation that occurs when two groups are separated and it begins with a V. And... I don't know. Is it not vivarians? Vivarian? Hold up. I've caused the right problem. I've got to find it out now. I've just Googled it. I can't find anything about it. <laughs> have I made up a word? I might have made up a word. Oh, this is frustrating. We're just going to have to move on because there's no way I'm going to be able to easily find what I'm talking about. But there's a term for splits that are driven by something getting in the way. And I think it begins with a V. And I feel like this is basically what you're describing is a textbook textbook version of it climatically where there's been a split because of this 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 intersection of unsuitable climate between them. Oh, yeah, definitely. And there's like other reptile species in Africa which show a similar pattern as well. So um, that kind of lends credence to the idea that, yeah, it's probably uh, climate that meant the area in between the two species became inhospitable. But yeah, remember ages ago and sort of semi-regularly, we talk about this idea that venom spitting in cobras might have evolved around the same time as humans arrived or early humans like bipedal hominins, not true 
not truly humans, but our kind of early ancestors. These uh, tool using apes walking upright and posing a threat to snakes. And there's a suggestion that around 2.5 million years ago, they caused the evolution of spitting in Asian spitting cobras. And a bit longer ago, something like six or seven million years ago, they may have been linked with the evolution of spitting in African cobras. Well, obviously this is, and the southern wrinkles are, spitting species. So we couldn't accurately date the timing of divergence because we had so little genetic information. But if somebody manages to find this snake alive or manages to get more data out of a museum specimen, then it would be really interesting to see if how the timing of these species diverging relates to humans arriving and whether or not it's kind of, um, whether it bolsters that hypothesis or not. So that's something something to kind of watch out for. It'd be cool if that happened. Yeah, basically more data, more specimens would help is what you're saying. Exactly, yeah. But, you know, two of the co-authors on this paper, Jens and Don, they went on a couple of trips relatively recently to try and find this snake. But yeah, they couldn't find it. So um, it may be extinct. It hasn't been seen since the 80s. But they are also just hard to find. So yeah, I think it's kind of like classic case of... Um, it was the same for cobras in Thailand, wasn't it? You know, it's really just dumb luck if you stumble across one. Even if you're looking, it tended to be that you'd get calls out and people would say, oh, there's one stuck in my kitchen or I've got some netting in my garden and there's a cobra stuck in there. So they're hard to find. So they may still be up there. I mean, that's just a thing. That remains to be seen. That's part of what they're doing is hiding from <laughs> people. If, if the whole sort of hypothesis about the spitting being developed as an anti-primate sort of thing, then it makes sense that they're difficult for us to find, right? Because that's heavy selective pressure not they're to be found, to right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, there we have it. Hemocartus niangensis, the niangarinkles. Welcome to science, as per usual. And uh, yeah, have you got any other business? I don't have any other business, no. Yeah, I think... There's not much else to say. If you want to get in touch with us, you can. Herphighlights at gmail.com. We are on social media. If you want to get in touch with us, please do. If we have any, if we've made a mistake or if you want to ask a question, yeah, hit us up. Big thanks as always to the Patreons at patreon.com slash herphighlights. And we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.